to yourself, I'm pretty sure this isn't going to go my way. I don't think this is going to be good. Get out of there. Get the fuck out of there. Hello and welcome to Meeting Musos, the podcast where I chat to professional musicians about their lives and their career paths in music. My guest this week is guitarist Duncan Floyd. I've known Duncan for the best part of a decade and had the pleasure of working with him for a number of years, touring internationally and around the UK, and we now live around the corner from one another. Later in 2021, he'll be playing on the West End production of Back to the Future at the Adelphi Theatre, which follows the initial run of the show in Manchester in 2020, which was cut short because of the coronavirus pandemic. Other theatre work includes the touring production of Mamma Mia, Little Shop of Horrors and a number of productions at the Menier Chocolate Factory, as well as depping on shows in London's West End. Duncan is also an accomplished jazz and fusion guitarist, with years of experience playing in all sorts of musical settings. In this episode, we discuss a wide variety of topics, including his approach to practising, his time playing in a signed band, studying music in LA at the age of 19, and the benefits of meditation and mindfulness as a musician. Duncan has loads of interesting things to say, so please enjoy the conversation. Yo. How's it going? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Good. Yeah. Um, I should point out straight away that we're recording this remotely and we both have quite excitable dogs, so there's a there's always mm-hmm. the chance of an interruption, but uh, bear with us if that happens. How's your day been, Dunks? What's been happening? Um, I haven't done anything very exciting today. I, went, I did bump into you in Sainsbury's. That was probably the most exciting thing that happened to me today. <laughs> uh, have you been playing today? Been practising anyth- anything musical? Uh, no, not today, actually. I've, Tuesday's always a bit of a, a dead day. I don't know why that is. I was teaching yesterday, so... Um, I tend to do a lot of practice in the day and the day before I teach just because I'm teaching some people who are quite good and I don't want to be too rubbish when I'm doing that. So I try and put a good few hours in before I start and try and be at least half decent. That's the idea anyway. Uh doesn't always work, but you can get away with stuff when you're teaching, can't you? You can kind of say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah and just kind of brush over things yeah. that you're rubbish at. And pretend like you're just not bothering, you know, in a way that you can't on a gig. But yeah, is your uh, is your practice routine pretty scheduled and and organised like that as as a rule? Um, yeah, I mean, I try, I it, I try to make it organised and regimented, but in reality, I tend to get obsessed with small parts of things, and I end up practicing tiny little things for a long period of time so I might go you know I might plan that I'm going to do this and that and I'm going to do a whole load of you know reading practice and I'm going to do some you know practice something that I haven't practiced or do some chord melody thing or something in reality I end up sitting working on technique a lot uh which I think most guitar players probably do because it's kind of the obsession with guitar players playing fast and that stuff you know it will kind of starts when you're about 12 and never really goes away so you're always don't know in the back of your mind there's always this thing of uh you know wanting to be technically the best you can be and I think that's uh 
maybe that's a generational thing as well. I don't know, but I always end up doing a lot of technique practice. Although recently that's been more relevant and more important than ever before, because I realized quite a while ago now that I was having a lot of problems with my left hand and it wasn't really functioning the way I thought it did, whether that's because it never did. And I was just kidding myself for a long time, which is likely or whether it actually got worse, I don't know. But there just came a point when I had to really start to go back to the beginning with basic technique and kind of rebuild a lot of the dexterity in my left hand. I think also, actually, one of the things with that was that I, when I was younger, I used to rely on picking everything. And as I've got older, I've kind of become less... Uh, I, I kind of don't like that as much. So it's really highlighted the fact that I've got to put a lot more work into, I've got to have a more, you know, a better left hand than I, than I used to have to, because I could get away with things because I just used to plough through everything with a pick, uh, which, yeah, like I said, I don't do that so much. So, yeah, I do a lot of practice, but um, uh, it's not always as, you know, well organised as I would like it to be, and it tends to go off down rabbit holes. Yeah, that um, sort of obsession with technique or you know if that's the, the place that you always end up down that rabbit hole and that that's what you tend to work on a lot do you find that that's that ends up being at the expense of other things do, do you feel that you miss out on other things that you would like to be working on long term yeah definitely that i suppose that that is true although i mean i'm definitely not alone if it, and i know loads and loads of other guitar players in fact most certainly most professional guitar players um have the same issue you know it's not like it's not unique at all um and in fact one of the reasons you become professional i suppose as an artisan rather than an artist i.e., as a freelance musician or session musician or whatever you want to call it or whatever it is these days um it's because you're trying to be good that's the whole you know you get booked to do stuff because you're good not because you've got you know because you write beautiful songs or because you've got a great ear for a melody or whatever it's because you've got the chops to lay it down perfectly the first time or you know play really well on the gig whatever it is so it's going to be it's always going to be the case that people who do what we do for a living are going to be a bit obsessed with that so um so i don't know if it's at the expense of other things because it might be the most important thing i suppose the only thing i think you know is that there are other things i would like to be good at but i kind of feel like i really need to get my chops together first but then you know i'm 41 now and i've been getting my chops together since i was 13 so <laughs> maybe it's never gonna happen <laughs> uh, it is a, it's a bit of an endless pursuit isn't it yeah i think it is yeah the other thing with that actually with it being an endless pursuit is that if you if you do what i've certainly spent most of my practicing life doing which is obsessing and kind of going down the rabbit holes you build tension and you a lot of the time you get worse and, you know, the whole thing becomes counterproductive. So that's certainly something I've learned in the last five or ten years, I suppose. It's really, I, I kind of knew it before, but I've I've really come to, to understand that it's the most fundamental thing, really, is tension when it comes to playing. Because tension stops everything from, from working when you're doing anything physical. So A lot of your career has been in musical theatre and, and playing shows eight times a week um does that repetition have something to do with it as well you, you talked about a specific problem with your 
left hand and, and this obsession with working on technique, does the repetition of playing the same thing over and over again come into play? Uh, yeah, I think it does. Um, but I think for me, if I'm honest, and <coughs> I, I think if I'm honest, it, it, what it does is it highlights the problems. And I, I know I've said that to people before, that the thing about the amazing thing about doing pit work is that you can't lie to yourself about things you know and actually compared to a lot of people that I know a lot of guitar players that I know who've done really 99% musical theatre work and 1% other stuff I have done a much more balanced I would say it probably is a good 50-50 I've done tons of gigs in all sorts of different environments and started off really doing jazz gigs mainly um, in my in my early 20s or sort of mid-twenties before that I was in a signed band. So I, I did do a whole load of stuff, and it was sort of towards the end of my twenties when the show thing became the main thing. Prior to that, there was probably, yeah, only, you know, a third of the work I was doing was probably shows. But the thing that shows that doing a show, or certainly doing a long run of a show, does is it highlights uh, any issues that you've got. And that can be anything from issues you have spending a lot of time with other people, or, you know, working with other people in close proximity to technique issues or, you know, anything at all you can think of. It really highlights that, it really brings it to the surface. And I think the difference is that when you do gigs, so certainly when I used to do a lot of function gigs, um, you do a gig and you might play a really ropey gig and feel terrible about it, but you could always say to yourself, yeah, well, the thing is I couldn't hear anything, and which might have been true, and you might go... Yeah, and I didn't really know that very well. And then the guy counted that in completely the wrong tempo. And there's, there's a million excuses. Every time you're in a different environment, there's loads of other things you can blame. And you can believe that because, you know, it is partly true. When you're sitting in a show every day, um, playing with your in-ears in, playing the same music to the same click track with the same people, you can't lie to yourself about why you screwed that bit up or why you can't play this very well. You just have to look at it. You have to stare down the barrel of it every day and go, at some point, you have to admit to yourself, I'm not very good at doing this particular type of thing. I'm going to have to do something about it. And I think that's kind of the blessing of it, really. But it's also the thing that drives you mad because it might be that you're just never actually going to get very good at doing that particular thing and you have to listen to yourself do a terrible job of it or what you perceive to be a terrible job of it every day. Yeah. Because also the more you listen to it, the worse it seems. So Yeah, that's a really interesting point about it. It sort of puts everything under a microscope, doesn't it, doing that sort of work? And it's it's not even just about the playing, as you say, that it's personalities as well. And you live in this little bubble and you're with the same people day in, day out, and you sort of become... Especially on tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, obviously, the, most of the work that we've... And these days, because the West End is such a, a kind of um, a closed thing, and not to say that, you know, obviously... You know, I've worked in the West End and and everything, but not nowhere near as much as working on tour. And being on tour definitely amps that up even more because at the end of the day, you're still in that bubble. When you go back to your digs, even if you're not with anyone else, you're still in that city because of your job. You're doing it 24 hours a day, whether you realise it or not. Take us back to uh, where music started for you. Um, what was music like in your childhood? Where did it all stem from um okay well this kind of i suppose the the nuts and bolts of it are that at some point when i was five 
my mum <laughs> <my mom laughs> decided that I could sing. I don't know where that came from particularly. I must have sung something at some point. My mum decided that I could sing, and so she kind of told the head of music at this school, at the prep school I was at, that uh, I should sing a solo in the nativity <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the nativity concert, show, play, whatever it is. It's normally the other way uh, around, isn't it? The teacher normally tells the parents that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, obviously I was five, so I can't really... I don't. I can't remember the ins and outs of exactly the process. I just suddenly, all I was aware of was that I was told that I was good at singing and that I would be singing, you know, once in Royal David City in the Nativity, and you know that led to me being a choir boy, doing like you know competitions and um, all this kind of stuff. Although I was never in a, I never went to a choir school. I didn't go to one of the schools where you kind of put a gown on and get up at 6am and go and sing mass or so I never did any of that it was all much more on the sort of performing artsy kind of side of things but um but yeah I did a lot of boy treble singing until I was about 13 I think and my voice broke one summer holiday I guess yeah which would have been like 92 or something like that um and prior to that I'd already I've been pestering my parents for a to buy me a guitar for a long time before that. And they had bought, they'd, they'd agreed to buy me one uh, as long as I kind of shared it with my dad. I think my mum was under the opinion that I would find it really difficult and give up very quickly. Despite the fact at this point I'd been singing for seven years or something, I also had piano lessons and I'd been playing the trumpet since I was seven. So I did have some understanding of what playing a musical instrument was about. Yeah. Um. But the playing the guitar thing was really a rebellion thing because I hated doing the singing. I hated being constantly ferried around, you know, every lunchtime doing some other kind of choir thing or singing lessons or whatever it was. Um, so it was really, a re- I wanted to kind of chuckle that in the bin and, and uh, the guitar was kind of my vehicle to do that, much to the absolute disgust of everyone around <laughs> I mean, I had a music scholarship to school, uh, Frencham Heights, which was a brilliant, amazing time. But um, when I when my voice broke, I really used it as an opportunity to say, you know, I'm not singing anymore. And it all hell kicked off. They wanted to expel me, you know, <laughs> take away the scholarship. It was it was mayhem, <laughs> absolute mayhem for about a year. And then uh, and then we moved and uh, I kind of got a chance to we changed school so I got a chance to kind of reset but you said that the um the guitar was a bit of a rebellion thing where did that come from was that just I mean apart from the obvious that it's you know rock and roll electric guitar but had you had you been listening to music had you been listening to guitarists was that on your radar or was it just literally about something completely different from the choir boy stuff no it was it was from my dad which is probably I guess the classic story really isn't it my dad loved still does love everything that's like blues rock, Clapton uh, and Jimi Hendrix and Mark Knopfler, Die Straits. Um, so Sunday mornings would always have, uh, my dad had always put a record on and I think that was that was it for me. It was like, you know, I guess in the mid-80s probably, so before any of that, so when I was, yeah, I guess sort of, yeah, in the mid-80s, Sunday mornings he'd put like whatever was out at the time, August by Eric Clapton or Brothers in Arms by Die Straits. 
or that he had like a best of cream that was like a double vinyl so that or sometimes sergeant peppers and it was those records that yeah that got me into it. i wanted to oh smash hits jimmy hendrix smash hits which was like a compilation of all the singles that you couldn't actually they didn't appear on you know on one record so right. purple haze and all that stuff um and it was those records yeah i just i wanted to do that so i kept badgering my parents but um i suppose in the end it ended up being a rebellion thing but it wasn't it wasn't just a rebellion thing you're right there was you know uh there was something else you know there was an actual love for the music so then well. what what was next then was it lessons private lessons or well, did I didn't you self taught I was pretty much self-taught, but the thing was I had a music lesson every lunchtime or some kind of music activity every lunchtime after school. I had trumpet lesson, you know, let's say on a Monday, and then I'd have a singing lesson on a Tuesday, and then I had school orchestra on a Wednesday, brass band on a Thursday, you know, chamber choir on a Friday. And, you know, so it was like I I had so many music lessons. I I said my mum said, you know, she'd get some guitar lessons. And I was like, no way. <laughs> this is my thing. I want to enjoy it. I don't want this to be destroyed by you. So um, so I didn't. But looking back on it, that was a mistake because really there were huge gaps in my knowledge. Um, and I couldn't, I didn't have the attention span uh, really to kind of work through any books. So, you know, I'd open up a book, learn one bar of something out of it and then put it away again. I just wasn't interested. All I wanted to do really was be Eric Clapton in Cream. And, and I had these two other guys at school um, called James Mann and John O'Wood, who were... Uh, James Mann, I basically forced to play bass. <laughs> he was having... <laughs> uh, he was having guitar lessons, uh, but I was like, you're going to play bass. And I, I think I was probably quite a pushy little kid. And John O'Wood uh, played drums. He was having drum lessons, so... The three of us used to play together every day, pretty much, I think, after school, you know, as soon as we could. Um, we'd, we'd go to the music block and play, and there was, a, like, a drum room, a drum kit in it. And uh, and we'd all we used to play every day for ages and ages was Sunshine of Your Love by Cream, down one string, in E. <laughs> so, you know, completely, like, you know, one finger kind of tastic. And then I knew the pentatonic, you know, I knew some of the pentatonic, so I just play terrible well what i thought at the time were amazing but i'm sure now looking back on them they're probably absolutely dreadful uh guitar solos that went on for days you know <laughs> and that's what i wanted to do you know so that's so i didn't really want to have to learn i didn't want to learn songs and stuff i just wanted to you know noodle around pentatonic scale so they, yeah so that was the first few years of my guitar playing really was doing that and when did jazz come into it um that happened later on when i was at sixth form college i was um, when I was at school, uh, in so after the after the Frencham days, and we moved, um, I went to Sixth Form College in Andover, um, and I had, and it was a, I went there because it had a really good music department. It had a very sort of forward thinking music department. They did they were doing music technology, and they had a double A level music course, and they had some uh, really good teachers. And we had a teacher called Mark Osborne, who kind of. He was like the, he was a very sort of intense, arty guy who was a composer and and he introduced a few of us to um, Weather Report um, and that was kind of the beginning of the jazz thing. Uh, so, yeah, it was that was down to Mark Osborne. 
Um, and I kind of thought, oh, that's interesting. I went, there used to be a shop in Winchester where we lived at the time near the railway station, uh, which is like a second-hand record shop. And I went and bought first two jazz records I bought were Letter From Home by Pat Metheny and Secrets by Alan Holdsworth. And um, I used to go and buy vinyls because, you know, in the mid-90s, vinyls were like £2.50 second-hand vinyls. So yeah. you could get a tenner from your mum on a Saturday that you meant to spend on your bus and some lunch, whatever. <laughs> and I'd just literally go and buy tapes and vinyls with it. Um, I've still got all of them, actually, up there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, so the, that kind of started then. And there were a few of us who were really quite intensely into music. Um, and we all kind of got really into Weather Report and stuff like that. I can't think what else we were really into at the time. I don't think we'd quite... We hadn't really got to kind of straight-ahead jazz. We might have listened to a bit of Miles Davis, maybe, but we weren't... Um, it was kind of... It was the fusion and the kind of funk kind of fusion thing that we were into, but... Yeah. And so then, after school, after Sixth Form College, you do something which is not all that common, and you went to the States, didn't you, to LA to study? Yeah, well, that was down to the fact that... So I've got two friends who I still... I, don't, I mean, I don't see them as much as I like. I see one of them quite a lot because we work together. But Nick Souden and Adam Chetwood, who were these two uh, guys who were super insanely good guitar players at quite a young age, and they really... When I got to sixth form college, I thought I was pretty great. I, was, I wasn't... <laughs> I, was I was pretty convinced that I was pretty good. And then I met those two who were in the year above me, and they were so good, um, particularly Adam. He sort of had this, uh, he could learn pretty much anything note for note, like really insane stuff. He had all the tons of Robin Ford solos down and, you know, bearing in mind we were like 16, um, you know, and tons of Steve Vai and Satriani and that kind of stuff that was popular at the time in the guitar geek world. But um, it was a big eye opener for me. And they went on, they went to the ACM, uh, which had just opened up. It was quite new then. Um and at the ACM, there was a guy teaching there. They kept they were sort of raving on about this guy, Pete Callard. You know, he was this amazing guitar teacher, you know, he was just a great guy and he could play jazz and, you know, all this stuff. And I kept going, whenever I was sort of thinking about, um, well, you know, I need to get better, I need to get a better guitar teacher, um, this name, Pete Callard, kept coming up. There was this real standout moment. I'd, I'd finished sixth form college and I'd, I had a place at University of Manchester to do popular music studies. And I was walking my parents' dog. Um, and I had at the time, I had the only job, I've had, the only proper job I've ever, ever had, which I had for a summer um, in an electroplating works in Surrey, uh, where I'd go in the afternoons and do kind of like manual labour. And um, I was starting to get a little bit kind of depressed because I was thinking, what am I actually going to do? Like, what am I doing now? I don't really want to go... And do popular music studies. I want to like. I want to do jazz and and all this kind of stuff. I thought I need to get a serious teacher. I need to kind of like. Cause I felt myself kind of drifting off from playing guitar into kind of just being a bit lost and being one of those people who never kind of carries on at life and just ends up, you know, floating about. So I thought I, I was out walking the dog. I thought I'm going to ring up the ACM and I'm going to say, can I book some private lessons with Pete, Cal Pete Callard and, and see what happens? And they said, yeah, of course you can, yeah. And and the guy on the phone, I don't know who it was, said, you know, he does jazz, right? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> so I went for a lesson with Pete Callard. And to be honest, that was probably the best thing that I ever did career-wise because it gave me a complete 
it gave me somebody to to kind of have as a mentor it gave me the kind of direction and the education that I needed at the time and it gave me the motivation and it just gave me the full kind of package that I could go okay I know what I need to practice so I was then I was I was on it you know I was I didn't have a lot of other stuff going on so I was just practicing all the time um and he gave me tons of material to practice and it was all really like opening you know mind opening kind of like stuff I didn't have any clue about you know um playing over changes and all this kind of stuff and uh yeah so that was kind of the next year I just really got my head down had lessons with him and he said to me you know if you don't want to go and do popular music studies at Manchester why don't you think about going to America because that's what he'd done and in the early 90s a few people had kind of done that it was a, it was a thing to do I mean not many but but a few people had done that and he'd done that so I kind of thought oh, okay maybe I could do that you know so I got the prospectuses from Musicians Institute um, and Adam Chetwood uh, and Nick Sowden had mentioned that Frank Gambali, who we were really into, he was a big fusion guitar player uh, that everyone everyone who knows anything about guitar will obviously know. Um, he'd opened up a new school, which was kind of, some of the guys from Musicians Institute had kind of moved up to Pasadena, which is just a bit further kind of northeast of of, of Hollywood, where lots of nice kind of uh, middle-class people live and they'd opened a school up there so I kind of had these two places in my mind anyway I booked to do like a postgrad course at Musicians Institute and I had a little bit of savings so I, I paid for it with that and I went and did it and it was just uh, the most stressful time <laughs> it was such a brain melting time because I was 19 really dumb really when I think about it now very I mean not dumb naive intelligent but very naive very green um and I rocked up in Hollywood and I was like wow I didn't have anywhere to live um I you know I didn't have any I, I looked about 12 <laughs> at the time I'd got because I'd got really into jazz I'd kind of decided that jazzers had no image so I'd kind of de decided that I must have no image so I'd shaved all my hair right down to like a three or a two um, clean shaven I was very skinny and very small um, I'm only five foot five now so uh, yeah I was very a scrawny little kid and I refused to wear jeans I'd only wear smart trousers and jumpers <laughs> so this was my, <laughs> this was my idea <laughs> this is what I decided in my head this is what a fusion guy in in LA like lord knows where I got this idea from but <laughs> this is what I decided so I just looked like this weird kid I was completely on my own <laughs> and I because I was doing this postgrad thing I didn't start at the beginning of the year I started in the middle of the summer like I started halfway through a year um and so I was just like whoa what is going on you know and I had to really wake up really quick I had to grow up kind of on the spot and kind of get my shit together um but it was a crazy thing, and it's the maddest thing that's ever happened to me in my life, was that I'd been there for a few weeks, and uh, Pete had said to me, you know, like, when you get there, it's going to be crazy. You're going to go, what am I doing? What's going on? You know, it's going to throw you way out of your comfort zone. So book yourself into the Holiday Inn on Highland Avenue, which is really near college. Stay there for a few days, get your shit together, and then when you're settled in, you'll find an apartment, whatever. You can go to the guy, at, there's a guy at MI who deals with uh, housing and, and get yourself an apartment but the thing was I couldn't find an apartment because because of the time when I'd started no one was moving in no one was moving out it was it was really difficult so time had gone by I was maxing my credit card out which my you know my mum was kind of lending me money and stuff and I was like oh you know I'm, not, I, I'm gonna have to go I don't know I'm gonna go I'm gonna have to go and stay in the hostel 
so I sort of was getting ready to go down and stay in a hostel and I was talking to my mum on the phone kind of freaking out saying I don't know you know like I don't know where I'm gonna stay and stuff and she was like yeah, yeah. anyway um when you get a minute can you go to the Beverly Centre and go to Bloomingdale's there and have a look at um wedding presents for Charlotte because you know she's getting married <laughs> and I was like right okay you know like, I'm, I'm having a crisis here but okay so I said to her it's Charlotte who I'd never met is my, my sister uh my mum's my mum's cousin, that's right, my mum's cousin, um, she was getting married in, in England. And I said, why is Charlotte's wedding present at Bloomingdale's in Beverly Hills? And she said, oh, I don't know. Um, hang on, let me find out. So she called me back a bit later and said, well, she lives in L.A. And I was like, right, OK. <laughs> so anyway, then a few hours passed and Charlotte turns up at the hotel and said, basically, cut a long story short, they're really great people, her and Thomas Love, her husband, uh, husband-to-be at the time, basically said, look, we're going to England to get married and then we're going to Croatia, which is where he's from, for, a, you know, a month or whatever it was. And we could do with someone to look after the house because we're going to be away for a long time. Would you like to house it for us? So I spent the next two months or something. I just went, I went from, like, the bottom, like, I was moving into a hostel had no money, was really shitting my pants, you know, like, um, to suddenly I was in this house on my own with looking after two dogs. I had, like, five cars <laughs> to that I was allowed to drive, you know, whatever. It was, you know, it was crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, I drove around in um, Charlotte's Subaru Legacy, <laughs> two-and-a-half-litre beast of a car, uh, whilst they were away and um, sort of randomly bumped into... There was another guitar player at MI who was who sort of had a similar situation to me, but he was actually just... He wasn't really staying for the long haul. He was just doing this post-grad thing. Um, so I got him to come and stay at the house because he had nowhere to stay. Um, and the two of us kind of hang out there. And then there were these two girls that he'd met who were travelling around America. So they came and stayed for a few days. And we had this whole kind of, like, very... LA kind of <laughs> hippie commune. Yeah, living the dream. Hangout. It was great. It was great fun for a, for a little while. Amazing thing so to do at 19 as well. Yeah, I was so, I mean, really, I was so kind of really grateful for that, uh, for that sudden kind of, you know, bolt of lightning that, that kind of, you know, came out of the blue and sorted me out there because I probably would have had a really miserable time. I would have stayed, but I would have had to stay in the, the hostel on, um, Hollywood Boulevard, which is a pretty miserable place. Um, and then I probably would have gone home at the end of the post-grad, which was only, um, I can't remember how many weeks, but it was like maybe a semester or two semesters or something, I can't remember. But I've probably never gone back. But as it turned out, because I'd met Charlotte and Thomas, they said, well, you know, if you want to come back and like do the full course, you can rent one of the rooms in our house and you can stay there. That's totally cool. So um, I didn't really love MI. It was kind of, at the time, it w- it wasn't, the place that it had been when people like Pete Callard and that had gone there. So I went up and had a look at Llama, which is now, which was called at the time Llama as Los Angeles Music Academy. Now it's called the Los Angeles College of Music. Um, but it's a very small college with an incredible faculty. Um, and it's just, it's a great vibe. And yeah, and so that's what I did. I went home for a few weeks and then got a massive student loan and came back and did the full course at Lama and uh yeah had my brain melted yeah the guys that I I studied with like Frank Gambali and Jeff Richmond and Dave Hill and Bill Fowler and you know all these incredible people I mean um 
they had amazing visiting artists come in like you know Mike Stern and Wayne Krantz and all these incredible people and uh, you know all the departments were amazing and the school was very very small so you know there's probably only a couple of hundred people there whilst at MI or Berkeley or somewhere like that you have you know a thousand people or more than a thousand people I guess yeah um how did that set you up for a career well it didn't (laughs) (laughs) it made it really hard and and then one of the things you know when you were sort of chatting to me about this in the first place I was trying to think of my trying to be really honest you know I don't want to just be all like oh yeah it's great you know because the reality of it is that it it might not have been the right decision. It took me a long time. I mean, probably one of the reasons I didn't start doing shows until, uh, you know, the back half really of my 20s properly, although I was doing them, I wasn't doing them regularly until the back half of my 20s, probably till I was like 26 or 27, I guess, regularly, um, is because I didn't know anyone, you know. And there's yet there's other people. There's certainly a lot of players I know who pretty much when they're in their last few years of their doing their degree at music college in London, they're pretty much getting ready to do a show, or they might have even started doing a show. There's never that kind of downtime, you know. For me, I was kind of I did really well in the states in terms of my college kind of thing. I I did you know I I I got a really good mark and I was really kicking ass, you know, when I came back, and then I joined. Um, a band because I really I was I kind of had this opportunity to play in a band and I was so burned out from playing fusion and doing sight reading every day and just having being completely roasted constantly I really thought yeah you know I want to do something completely different for a bit and it came along and it ended up being something that actually took completely consumed the first year of me being back which was um working with Andy Burroughs and Pete Hobbs uh both of which have gone on to do great things and are incredible musicians in their own right. But for me, it was a completely... I didn't expect it to do as well as it did, as quickly as it did. And so I was kind of thinking, oh, this is a great, this is a breath of fresh air. And suddenly I was there doing 100 gigs, you know. Uh, I think we did 100 gigs in that year. Wow. Which, and that's not touring, that's gigs, you know. So we yeah. did do tours, but we do like a week tour, which is amazing fun in that. But I was suddenly like, whoa, hang on a minute. I didn't, I didn't realise this was going to happen, so... Um, so I had that kind of, and then after that, I just had a lull really for a, a couple of years where I really was like, is this, am I ever going to be like a, a pro, you know, like a, like a sort of professional musician who turns up and, you know, does pit work or all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it took a while for that to, um, to really kind of pick up. And that's because I decided that I'd leave the country, you know? Yeah. Do you think, uh, was there an opportunity at the end of studying there for you to stay in the States? And, and if, if you had, do you think things would have panned out a bit drastically differently to how they have? To be honest with you, I kind of, um, when I got there, I kind of, I was like, yeah, you know, maybe I could stay in, you know. I mean, the LA scene is very different uh, these days than it was when, you know, it was kind of in its heyday in the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, by the time I was, this is the end of the 90s, beginning of the noughties, um, it was kind of, it, it it wasn't great. It was still cool. You know, there's lots of amazing people there, but it wasn't the place that, that it had been for some other people who, you know, who kind of raved about it. Um, but I kind of realised that, two well, two things happened. Firstly, September the 11th happened and I was there. And after that, I thought, I need to go home. Mm. 
because everything was getting quite mad, you know. Um, September the 11th, 2001. And I was getting towards the end of my course and I was kind of thinking, shall I stay for a bit? Shall I go? Shall I go to New York on the way home? That was an idea I had. Um, I was a bass player, Japanese bass player, a friend of mine who was like, yeah, I'm going to New York, you know. I kind of thought, yeah, I could go to New York, you know, because I was getting very into the jazz thing. I thought, you know, LA's a bit too pop for me by the time I got to the end. I wanted to, um, you know, play a big archtop guitar and go to New York. That was sort of part of my vibe. And then I thought, if I go to New York, I might never, I might not go home, you know, I might I might end up staying there. So I wasn't sure. Um, and yeah, September the 11th happened and I just thought, I'm going to go home. Do you know what I mean? When this is done, I'm I'm going home because this is getting crazy and I haven't done anything in the UK, you know. I mean, I had it's like trying to go to the Premier League when you when you literally it's the first time running out onto the pitch. It doesn't make any sense <laughs> to go, I'm gonna just stay in LA, you know. So I thought I'm gonna go home. I don't I don't really understand LA. I didn't really love LA either. I wasn't like, oh I love it here. I didn't for me it wasn't a city and I'm um, to me um, growing up in and around kind of London and the home counties being kind of that person. I had a real, and I still do have a real affinity with London and I get it and I understand what it's about. And and it just feels good to me whilst LA was this bizarre spread out hot place that I didn't really like. So although I really loved going to see Alan Holdsworth on a one day and then going to see, you know, Alan Hines playing all these amazing musicians that were there and, and that kind of side of it. I didn't really like the place and I did not get it at all. Yeah. Couldn't stand the fact you couldn't walk anywhere. Um and you really couldn't. You just didn't walk anywhere. It's too hot and everything's too far away. So I was ready to come home and I just thought, you know, I'm I'm done with LA and I, I kind of Yeah. I came home nineteenth of March two thousand and two. <laughs> I remember it. I, wow. I was ready to come home. <laughs> yeah you mentioned your work with Andy Burroughs when you came back who I'm guessing that's before he went on to join Razorlight and do all the stuff yeah. he's done since yeah that's right yeah so um I yeah I came back and they Andy and Andy Burroughs and Pete Hobbs had always been working together for years in various forms in their you know um you know Pete's an amazing songwriter and Andy's an amazing drummer and yeah so we had a, a they needed somebody else another guitar player to kind of zhuzh up the thing that they were doing at the time which was when i joined it was just called peter john hobbs um it went through various other kind of names and stuff uh and by the end it was called it was a band and we signed to a small kind of indie label and we were called stag for a bit and um and then i just i just you know one day we'd recorded i think we did two singles we put two singles out at the end of the recording of this second single i I just had enough really and uh uh had a few beers with pete and said uh, i'm done you know i'm off i just couldn't it wasn't my vibe at all and there was this constant thing of going i wasn't allowed to pretend i had to pretend that i didn't have any music education it was all getting a bit like stupid you know i, I wasn't right. allowed to be the, be me really yeah was that all so, about um, just the the image of the band and that yeah the stuff? image of that had to be kind of like cool I, if i was asked about it, i'd say that i didn't go and study in la i went over there to try and be an actor and it was a bit like yeah. what you know yeah. so it was it was just wasn't really my thing and and um yeah it was all getting a bit weird uh so it was a nice little i'm glad it happened and i'm glad i did it because you know i was 22 and you know, if I want, if I hadn't done it, I might be sitting here now at forty-one, going, "Oh well, I wish I'd done something like that." Because all mm. I've done is, you know, 
the alternative would have been probably going on a cruise ship or playing at you know holiday camps and stuff like that that you do when you start off being yeah. a freelance musician so i kind of didn't do the holiday camps in the cruise ship because i did a signed band so that's kind of cool yeah. but um and then i kind of picked it up after that but like i said there was a I suppose partly because I went to the States and then I did something that was essentially completely random from what I was intending on doing that I then had these kind of years where I was like, am I ever going to get any gigs doing the thing that I do? You know, mm. eventually obviously that did happen. But And what happened in the the time between? So you've, you've leave playing with the band and then was that when all the jazz stuff started to, to happen here? You started doing your own jazz yeah, gigs? I was or? Doing, yeah, little jazz gigs. I was always doing little jazz gigs, with people, like restaurant jazz gigs. I kind of... Uh, I did loads of them for a period of time. I haven't done any for years, but I did loads of them where it was just either me and a piano player, me and another guitar player, me and a bass player, um, you know, for cash. And I did quite a lot of teaching, you know, in those yeah. first few years I did um, did a lot of private teaching. Uh, so, yeah, and that was it for, for a couple of years. And then, yeah, and then I started doing stuff at the Chocolate Factory and so the show thing kind of stuff and like that and then I started getting function work and then I had a residency in the restaurant of the Chocolate Factory with a quintet playing jazz on a Thursday night. So that led to more jazz gigs and meeting more people, getting more work, the show thing picked up and the whole and all areas of it kind of all snowballed at the same time. So I'd find that I'd be doing for three months of the year, I'd be doing a show at the Chocolate Factory. Then I'd be doing function gigs. I'd be doing um, smaller kind of show productions and college productions. I'd be doing jazz gigs. I'd be doing all these things. So it was really good varied stuff you know and looking back on it now it was a really good time of and also i was actually earning decent money although it didn't feel like it at the time because i was always broke because mm. i lived in london but, uh, <laughs> and i went out drinking all the time <laughs> <laughs> um nice. kind of, when it once it got going it got going fast so it was kind of okay you know i had a couple of years where i was really worried about it and then suddenly everything happened at the same time so it was all right if you if you could do anything to sort of satisfy you musically or creatively as your day job in an ideal world, like regardless of the work that's available or, you know, this could be in any era in the last century, what would you, what would you ideally like to be doing on a day-to-day basis to be earning your living as a guitar player? I mean, I think the the simple answer to that is the, the thing that I that always is the most satisfying is if you're playing music that you like with people that you like, that's really the thing. And ideally those people that you like are probably people who are quite good as well. Um, that's all it is. It doesn't, I don't mind if that's in a pit or if it's on a stage or if it's in a studio or whatever it is. If I'm playing music that I find that I think challenges me enough and that I like the music and I like the people I'm doing it with, then that's kind of enough, really. Um, I mean, I'm quite into the whole, uh, you know, I'm quite, uh, I know a lot of people are quite anti the whole internet revolution of like YouTube guitars and stuff, but I'm not at all. I think that's cool. You know, um, I don't mind that at all. I I love a lot of the guys on the internet, Tom Quayle and all those guys, uh, Rick Graham and people, they're amazing, you know. So I think that's just as valid, you know, people want to do that, but you know, I think, like I say, it's it's about the people and the music, really, for yeah. me. I remember uh, seeing something years ago or someone telling me something, when maybe when I was starting out, that your criteria for saying yes to a gig should tick at least two of the three boxes of, do I want to work with these people? Do I want to play this music? And is it well paid? And if, it's, yeah, if it's got any yeah. two of those, then you should do it. Yeah. I, I, I 
I had that same criteria list a long time before I should have had it, actually. <laughs> I kind of arrogantly had it from the beginning, which is a bit stupid because I probably did, didn't do some stuff that I should have done just because I didn't have anything to do, you know. But um, certainly, yeah, it's got to be career-enhancing, financially rewarding or fun. Yeah. It's got to be one of those three. But really, ideally, as long as you're paying the bills... The finance part of it, you know, I'm not I'm not money motivated at all. I'm not the guy who's like, I must make loads of money. I don't really care as long as I'm not broke. Yeah. You know, I'll always manage to find the money to buy another guitar. That's always <laughs> going to, that's, that's never going to be a problem. So, and that's the only thing I want to buy. So who cares? You know, other than that, I'd just rather be, you know, working with people I like and playing music I like. Yeah, nice. Uh, something that I'm interested to hear your take on, um, just knowing you as I do, you you're quite deliberate about certain things and your, uh, your approach to playing and, and career and work and all that sort of thing. What do you do? What's your process for warming up or preparing for a gig, whether that's a, a show or a function or like a one night or anything like that? And what, what's your sort of mental process in, in getting that right? Um, well, I mean, I suppose there's, there's two elements to that, really. There's the psychological, psychological element and the physical element. The physical element, I don't know, I change my mind all the time, you know. I mean, partly like I was saying at the beginning with all the kind of figuring out left-hand difficulties and dexterity and stuff that I'm doing at the moment. I change my mind all the time with that. This week I'm doing lots of yoga. I wasn't doing that last week. Last week I was just doing lots of kind of technical exercises, so... Physically, I suppose you want to play enough that you warm, but not so much that you're tired. You know, it's as yeah. simple as that, isn't it? Really, and you're not gonna, you know, much as I I kind of try and kid myself. Otherwise, you're not going to suddenly reinvent the wheel five minutes before you play the gig. Mm-hmm. So there's no point in trying to, you know, move mountains at that point. You just have to kind of go, okay, this is going to be what it is. You know, do the best you can. Um, on psychologically, um, I mean, I would say meditation is the best thing you can ever do to prepare for life especially if you're me because i'm just easily overwhelmed by information and stuff so trying to keep a calm brain is really important to me um so yeah meditation i've been doing meditation for a long time i was going to say because you've been meditation and mindfulness are obviously massive at the moment and people are really seeing the benefits of it and um it's quite a trendy thing to be doing but it's actually been a part of your life for a long time hasn't it yeah, since I was 10, wow. which is, sounds mad, but um, my parents were sort of, I suppose, a little bit hippies. They grew up in, you know, they got together in the 60s and stuff. Uh, and so they were, they'd been meditating, both have been meditating since, you know, before I was born. Um, and so when I was 10, um, they took me to, uh, I learned this kind of, this kind of like a kiddie, I think they call it a walking mantra meditation. Um, it's like a introduction for kids to mantra-based meditation. Um, so, yeah, it took me to the Transcendental Meditation place, which I think was probably somewhere like somewhere in West London. I can't remember where. And uh, they, you know, sort of said, you know, this is what you do, which obviously when you're 10, it doesn't make any sense to you and you kind of think, and you don't do it. So I never really, I didn't do a lot of meditation at the age of 10, I probably, I really, I suppose, got serious about it when I was about 18 and I thought, you know, performing was stressing me out. 
you know, the few gigs I was doing as a, certainly when I was like sixth form college and stuff, we used to do a lot of performances in their theatre there and it was a quite a good theatre and all of it was just too, you know, quite full on really. So I kind of, my mum said something to me about, you know, will you be a lot calmer if you did meditation? So I've been doing it fairly regularly since then. There's been the odd blip, you know, a year here and there where I just didn't do it for a year for some reason. But for the most part, I've done it most most days since I was about 18. Wow. Probably 80%, let's say, be realistic, 80% of days since I was 18. And how long do you meditate for? Um, tw- Well, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening is the kind of standard thing. I very rarely do it twice in a day. I tend to just do one chunk probably for about half an hour, and that's really just laziness. Uh, when we were working, doing, doing Mamma Mia, and it was like, you know, years had gone by and we were on tour, and I was tired. I used to do a lot more. I used to do like an hour and a half some days wow. because... I kind of just needed to keep myself going, you know, because we were, you know, especially with the jet lag and all those sorts of things when you're traveling all over the place, it was tiring. But, um, so I have, yeah, sometimes done a lot and sometimes, you know, at the moment I'm not particularly busy, so I'm doing less. I just do half an hour in the morning. Actually, I'm probably doing more than that at the moment, but still, you know, about that. Yeah. Is it the sort of thing that if you, if you miss it in the morning, you're aware of it for the rest of your days? Is, is it an essential part? No, I find it, that I don't notice to start off with, and this is the thing with it, is that it's a gradual increase, I think, in calmness, and it's a gradual decrease in calmness. So when, you know, if I, this is how I've managed to not do it for periods of time. So you kind of, you don't do it one day and you think, well, I feel great, you know, I don't know what I'm worried about, I don't know why I'm bothering to do meditation, what a load of rubbish, you know, I'm not going to do it anymore, (laughs) you know, and a week goes by and you start to feel a little bit more kind of on edge all the time and you think, oh, why do I suddenly feel... And you've forgotten that a week ago you decided that it didn't make any difference, you weren't going to do it. Then three months go by and you're stressed out and you're just, you know, irritable all the time. And you think, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I used to meditate. I didn't feel like this when I meditated. And then I'll go, okay, I need to get back to doing that. So I think it it sort of builds up, it kind of compounds on itself. So you don't notice it. And this is also why people don't do it because they do it once and they go well i still feel the same yeah so they don't do it again you have to do it for six months really yeah you do it every day for six months then look back at the beginning of the six months and you'll go oh wow yeah my life is actually quite different i'm way more productive i'm way calmer i'm nicer to be around etc etc so you you have to kind of stick with it it's a practice isn't it it's it's training essentially you're training your minds and like anything else whether it's a musical instrument or training at the gym it's a gradual process that builds up in, yeah, in, in small increments yeah absolutely in fact that's a really good way of looking at the gym thing i mean you don't go to the gym once and go why am i not ripped <laughs> you do it for some you do it for some serious amount of time don't you? <laughs> it's a, it is the same thing you're right yeah it's a practice yeah i bought a trumpet yesterday i played it for 10 minutes i can't play it <laughs> <laughs> i've just got a couple of questions just to round things up a little bit um do you have any regrets or mistakes that you're aware of or, or moments where you think you've there's been really bad judgment on your part career-wise yeah i mean i can definitely think of a few of those <laughs> <laughs> um there's things like especially with the show thing and i'm not going to go into too much detail but sometimes when you know that you shouldn't that you're like mm, particularly with depping depping is can be a hiding to nothing and actually take and this applies to all gigs actually if you think to yourself i'm pretty sure this isn't going to go my way i don't think this is going to be good get out of there get the fuck out of there because 
you will do so much damage to your own confidence, to your career, you know. Um, and I've done a couple of those, you know, luckily not too many, but certainly back in the beginning where I was going into something very naively and I thought, I don't think this is going to go well. And rather than going, OK, I've got the opportunity now with still time before the thing actually happens, whatever that gig is, to say, do you know what? I'm not ready for this and I'm going to do a bad job. So I think it's better if I don't do it. Is that OK? Rather than going, oh, yeah, I'm doing it anyway. That's not that's not a good idea. And people will tell you stupid advice like, oh, yeah, just get in there, you know, give it a go. No, that's not good advice. You know, you're talking about someone's career and someone's, you know, life's work. You don't want to, you know, play Russian roulette with it. Yeah. So I think I've had something that I've had to kind of constantly learn is that I know me and I'm my own best kind of, um, you know, advice you know, person, I don't know what the right word for that is. Advisor? But advisor, there you go. <laughs> I'm my own best advisor. And listening to other people saying, oh, yeah, well, it doesn't matter. Just, you know, go and do that terrifying gig that you know you can't do. Um, and if it goes wrong, it doesn't matter. It does matter, you know. it's it's That's not true. Well, not for me. It does for me anyway. So, yeah, um, yeah so I've definitely got some regrets on, on the kind of not trusting my own judgment yeah. side of things. That's definitely something. And I wonder also, you know, with the going back to the college thing, you know, if I hadn't gone to the States, what would have happened? You know, I mean, and also this is something I was kind of had even kind of earmarked to myself to say on this podcast, just in case anyone listens to it and is interested, that I don't know if going to music college is a good idea for professional musicians. I mean a lot of the time, a lot of the best musicians I know never went to college. In fact, I can think of three outstanding musicians who I know who never had any formal education after school. They just, they had lessons and obviously they studied and had books and teachers and stuff, but they didn't actually go to music college. Um, and the problem with music college these days, and certainly the kind of place that I went to, is that it's enormously overwhelming and you're surrounded by people who you feel constantly threatened by in terms of your ability. And and that breeds tension and that breeds stress and it makes playing not as enjoyable and all these kind of things. And I think that is a, with music colleges, that is a huge part of um, music colleges. And I know a lot of very famous guitar players say that, you know, if you go to Berkeley, you leave before it ruins your playing. In fact, I think John Mayer said that, that he left before it ruined his playing. And that I think that is, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I would have said that's bullshit. You know, yeah, you've got to go, you've got to be good, you've got to yeah. study really hard, you know. And now looking back, I, I realise that actually that's probably not the case and it it probably does as much damage as it does good, really. Some, that sort of comes back to what you said earlier, um, which I thought was really important and that's the importance of finding the right teacher for you. Um, you talked about Pete Callard and that suddenly like light bulb, mo- light bulb moment and realizing, you know, what was actually out there and what you wanted to do. And I, I don't know that you're given the opportunity at music college to, to end up with the person who's actually right for you and who's going to teach you what you actually want to learn. I guess at that age, yeah. you, you might not necessarily know where you want to go or what you want to learn, but um yeah that's really interesting that an alternative route where it's you know private study with a teacher might actually pay off more yeah absolutely i mean the, i certainly at the time i had uh i can't remember whether it was oh yeah it's a drummer in fact i can think of, i keep thinking of more musicians who kind of um didn't go to the music college kind of didn't do the music college kind of route 
mainly people who went to Bob Armstrong. Now, Bob Armstrong himself sort of is a music college, or was, sorry, um, was a, you know, incredible teacher. Um, and I kind of really wanted, I think, in an idea world, what I wanted was that I wanted to find somebody who was, who had a method that I could study in my own time at my own pace, that I would get results, and the results would be, you know, learning and everything I needed to know to be a professional guitar player, but also having the chops and, and that kind of Zen approach that he seemed to, from what I've heard um, from people I know who, who had lessons with him, that kind of Zen approach to playing the instrument where he really deconstructed people and then put them back together is really, you know, the best version of themselves. Music college does not do that. Music college just sort of terrifies you and throws loads of information at you and, you know, um, chucks you in at the deep end. And, and I think for some people, maybe that's great, but actually a lot of musicians are actually quite sort of um, introverted and they don't, that's not a great, necessarily a great way for them to learn. So I think, you know, I don't know if it was really the best thing for me to do or whether it took me a while to recover from it. Um, I still feel like there's tons of information that, I mean, I'm sitting here now, I can see my folders from college. I've got a whole shelf full of them. And I know there's tons of information in those folders that I still, I don't know. And I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, one day I should sit down and learn all of this stuff that's in them properly, which will never happen because, you know, I'm never going to have the time or the motivation to, to, to do that. But you know, is that is that good? Is that helpful to to give people way more than they need in a, you know in a period of time where they can't possibly take it on board? You know, I don't know. I think you know maybe it is, maybe it's not. I'm not saying it's definitely one or the other, but I, I certainly do find myself thinking I don't know if that was the right route. Um, if you had to give a piece of advice to your younger self or to someone similar starting out in a career in music single piece of advice just a sort of general nugget what would it be uh do it now (laughs) (laughs) don't wait if you think you might need to do something do it now uh specifically i suppose with practicing and stuff uh, and learning things you know if you think i should probably put some time into doing this particular you know learning to read learning to be a good sight reader is the classic one certainly for me you know and i'm not a good sight reader at all but I remember being 14 thinking, you know, I knew how to read music, I had a guitar, I could have sat and done some work on it, but I never did. And if I had done, I would have got lots of opportunities much earlier on than I did get because I would have been up to the standard that I needed to be, you know. Mm. Um, For a brief period of time, I went along to National Youth Jazz Orchestra rehearsals and just got my ass absolutely kicked, (laughs) uh, like everybody does who goes along. But And that was, uh, you know, it's a bit different now than it was when um, back in the day. But... um, you know, things like that, maybe that would have been an opportunity that I would have maximised if I'd put a bit of work in before. But there's lots of things that I can think of that I'm maybe practising or working on now that I think I knew about this 20 years ago. You know, I knew I needed to do some work on this and I didn't do it. I thought, is there a way around it? You know, there are no shortcuts. Do it now. I yeah. think that's probably what I would say. Prioritise the stuff that, that, that you're weakest at. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Just don't procrastinate, I think, really. You know, And I suppose there are probably some areas where you know don't do it at all maybe that's the other side yeah. of it do it now or don't ever do it yeah don't waste you your know? time on something that don't you don't waste need your time, yeah. yeah yeah um is there a memorable or a, a pivotal moment in your career so far and that could be like a moment where you've been doing something and realized this is amazing i love what i'm doing or a key moment where something's happened which has changed the course of of where everything's gone for you 
I mean, probably the the most fundamental like turning point, you know, for me was picking up the phone and booking a lesson with Pete Carr because it gave me an understanding of what it was I was going to do really, um, and it gave me the the method and and the kind of structure to get there. The the you know it gave me a path. So I say that was the first one. Yeah, there's probably been lots of smaller ones. Um, I I can't think of anyone in particular. You know, get always when you get a, a new gig or whatever that's always a, a good moment sort of puts you up a level but then there'll be something that knocks you down a bit so you know i can't think of another one that's good off the top of my head um and finally do you have any recommendations and this doesn't even need to relate to music this can just be something that uh you've had a lot of value from personally or creatively whether it's books films recent or from your distant past um, I think the thing I'd recommend would be meditation, actually. I think that's probably my top recommendation. Um, in terms of books and stuff... Um, you introduced me to some great books, music-related. Oh, yeah. The Inner Game of Music. Inner Game, yeah. That, that was yeah. sort of changed my whole perspective on loads of stuff. I found it really helpful. That was that was definitely a big... And that came at the same time for me as the Pete Callard kind of starting to have lessons with him and stuff. Um when I was about 18. Oh, no, it would have been a bit after that, I think, got the inner game. I used to do this thing um, around that time when, when I was after Sixth Form College before I went to study in the States and that's in that gap year, um, where I'm teaching at this, this um, weekend rock school thing called the Test Valley Rock School. And um, the guitar teacher I'd had at uh, Sixth Form College was a guy called Rob Robinson and he ran this thing on a Saturday and he used to get me to, and some of the other guys who, like, um, some of the other guys I mentioned earlier to go and teach. Um, it wasn't every weekend, but it was, um, you know, once a term or something. And there was a couple of guys there. There was a bass player called Jamie Menhenit and a drummer who I'm still mates with now. I sort of re kind of got back in touch with him called Steve Hines, who's the guy I was talking about. You know, I kind of really looked up to Steve because he was having lessons with Bob Armstrong. He's an incredible drummer. He plays shows now and stuff. Um, and he was so dedicated and so hardcore. He didn't need a college. He needed a room with a drum kit. That's it. And he just worked and worked. And he was super, incredibly good, you know, at really quite a young age. And he was 21 at the time and I was 19. And him and Jamie were sort of talk about, they'd come up with all sorts of interesting things. You know, every time you met them at one of these um, rock school weekends, you'd learn a whole load of stuff from them about people they'd been studying with or books they were reading or whatever. And the inner game of music, I think, came through Jamie Menhennett said, oh, yeah, you know, you should listen to this. Uh, you should read this book, sorry. Um, you know, it's really good. And, and I went and got it. And it was a real, yeah, for me, it was like, oh, wow, OK. There's a whole other world. It, it just basically, yeah, it turns you on to the fact that the psychological side of playing is as big a deal as the physical side of playing. And up to that point, for me, it had been practice you know yeah. Paul Gilbert exercises with a metronome it hadn't ever got to the the point of being like you know the way you think about everything massively affects yeah I the think way you do it I think know? the older you get as well and the more you do the more important the psychological stuff becomes in some ways depending on what you're doing it can outweigh you know the importance of your of your, of your playing ability that's definitely true I think I went a bit mad on it in the in the way that I do and pretty much gave up practicing um, <laughs> after college, and just read every psychological, every pop psychology, every psychological textbook, anything I could get my hands on, 
um, to try and understand more. And really, I went too far to the point where I was like, hang on a minute, I, I do actually have to do some practice, don't I? Oh, yeah, I better do that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm sure there's a balance to be struck there. Uh, the psychology of it is is very important. Yeah, I've recommended that book to so many people as well over the last few years since reading it. Um, it's just so useful. Um Great. Thank you so much, Danks. It's been really, yeah, no really interesting chatting to you and we could have gone on for hours, I'm sure, but take up any more of your time. Thanks very much. It's all good. Nice one. There you have it. That was my conversation with Duncan Floyd, which we recorded at the end of December 2020. I hope you found it as interesting and as valuable as I did. Make sure you check out the show notes for links to some of the things that we discussed. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so that you receive the latest episodes as soon as they become available. If you're able to leave a review, that would also really help spread the word about Meeting Musos. You can keep up with me on social media at Meeting Musos on Instagram and Twitter. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.